heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin presidential tweets. Today is episode 25. I have a great guest. His name is Vijay Boyapati. You might have heard of him from his bullish case for Bitcoin article. Went completely viral in the Bitcoin space not that long ago. You might notice that my audio sounds maybe a little bit different than what you're used to hearing in this recording. It's just because I'm trying out some different methods of capturing audio. A lot of times my guests, they don't have studio quality audio setups, which is totally understandable. And it's just part of the challenging nature of trying to do this podcast remotely with people all over the world. I do my best to clean up the audio in post. It takes a lot of work to make these sound listenable and not blow your guys' ears out with uh, random audio artifacts. So hopefully this one sounds good. I'll probably continue to record my audio locally, unlike I did in this one where I recorded it through Zoom, because it sounds a little bit compressed. I think I like uh, the other versions of my personal audio better, even though it doesn't always necessarily match the, the audio quality of my guest. At least then you can hear me right, and I can sometimes reiterate points. But you guys are going to love this one. Let's get to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. BJ, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm really glad to get you on the show. I've been a fan of yours for a while, actually, since I think I first heard about you right after you published the bullish case for Bitcoin. I would imagine that's when a lot of people found out about you. Yeah, that's the article that I've written that got um, the widest uh, readership. It's been read a few hundred thousand times. I've been interested in Bitcoin you know, a lot longer than that, but and, and I had a lot of the ideas um, in in my mind that came out in the article, but um, it, it, it took a long time to to get them down in an article. Um, I, I just felt like over the years there'd been so many bad arguments made of, about Bitcoin, and I, I really felt like a comprehensive case needed to be made, a financial and economic case for Bitcoin, and I wanted it to be in a single place, if only for myself, and uh, I honestly had no idea that it would uh, become so popular. I thought it would be just something that I'd share with a few friends because I, I wanted it to be a case that I could share with friends and say, hey, you know, I know you've probably heard some arguments against Bitcoin. These are the reasons I think it's a, uh, a really important um, investment, really um, world-changing technology and, and valuable investment. Um, so I expected it was going to be read maybe a couple hundred times, but it was a lot more than that, which was pretty, pretty, pretty exciting for me. Yeah, I saw it recently. Got someone turned it into a PowerPoint, and it's like really condensed, and and it's pretty good. I mean, I was looking through it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing I found most amazing is it resonated so much that there are people all around the world who decided to translate it, and it's it's been translated like ten or eleven times into all these different languages, like. Chinese and German and Portuguese and Korean. 
Uh, and to me, that was like incredibly humbling that people thought it was a good enough argument that's worth translating because it takes, it was a long article. I mean, it takes like an hour to read it. Um, it's almost like a mini book in a way. And that people took their own time to do that was really humbling for me. There's like this growing trend. I'm calling it Bitcoin vomit, where you have these super intelligent people that spend all this time studying and researching Bitcoin and like learning all of its intricacies. And then once it all takes enough time and it really seeps in, they just like, all right, I have to get this out. And they just like spew out all this wonderful information about like sort of their perspective on this massive ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And I think anyone who gets into Bitcoin has this experience of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and, and, and wanting to read everything and, and figure it out and understand why it's so important. And, and once you've done that, you know, you come across other people who are just getting into it and you just want to explain everything to them and you, you get so excited about their enthusiasm. And, and so it's this really great feedback loop where you know, people get excited and they, they want to explain to others why it's so exciting as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that 100%. And there, there's like this intoxicating enthusiasm with anybody who starts to really understand Bitcoin, where it's like, you sort of have this connection with them in a way where you can call up random people you don't even know and chat with them for hours on end about things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're already friends, right? And we haven't even met. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's probably not good for security, like threat modeling, but uh, it's good for making friends. <laughs> um, well, I don't want to get too much into the bullish case for Bitcoin because I know you've covered that kind of ad infinitum on a lot of other podcasts. Um, but if you want, wanted to like plug that real quick for, I have listeners don't frequent Bitcoin Twitter and maybe they've never heard of it. If you had to give like a short plug for what it is and why people should go check it out, what is it? I wanted to make a financial and economic case for Bitcoin as a monetary good and explain um, why is this thing which has you know, nothing backing it, it's not supported by any government, why does it have value at all? And I think if you dig into the question of why it has value at all, you can kind of understand why it's growing in value. And, um, and I, I kind of dig into why the how and why it's growing in value as well. Like, why does it go through these hype cycles? Um, and and what what is a good valuation for Bitcoin? How do we uh, understand what it could potentially be worth? And and how does it compare to other monetary goods like gold and, and fiat money, like dollars and yen and pounds? How do we compare these things? Um, so it's, it's an article which talks about all of those things. And, and I try to make an economic argument for why Bitcoin is so important. Hmm. I love it. Um, there's something really interesting about like the, the hype cycle and the, the speculation of like, well, we're speculating that Bitcoin is going to become global money. Right. And all these other people come in and they might not even get that right away, but they just, they see something's there, right? And they start coming in in waves. And a lot of them wash back out to, with the tides, you know? But um, the, the exponential nature of our society in, in this day and age is incredible. Yeah, yeah. So an interesting thing is that information can um, 
spread very quickly now and people can find out about things like Bitcoin and, and discuss it with people around the world very quickly. And one thing I think is fascinating about Bitcoin is this process of monetization of something that starts out as worth nothing and you know now it's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. We've never seen this process of monetization happen in real time. The process of monetization of gold, of something being, you know, a worthless rock, a worthless metal that people dug up in the ground and then eventually turned into global money, happened over thousands of years. And so, and some of it happened before, you know, recorded history. It happened um, before antiquity and, and, you know, the Greeks and recorded history. So, um, it, it's fascinating to me that we get to observe this in real time and see how it happens. And it, it seems to happen in this strange fractal pattern of increasing magnitude where it goes up in these parabolic waves and then it crashes because it gets ahead of itself and then it finds a plateau and stays at that plateau for an extended period of time. And then it goes into another parabolic uh, wave. Um, and, and so this is not something you would necessarily know if you were, you know, someone in um, the 19th century and you were trying to make a theory about how monetary goods become monetized. You may not have known it would go through this kind of pattern, but now we can observe it directly and, and we can learn a lot from what's happening with Bitcoin. It's almost... Um... I don't know the right word for it. It's almost like metaphorical. I don't think metaphorical is a good word, uh, but it, it's almost like an example of an ex, of an extremely. It's like an extremely compressed timeline. Uh, the way it's all playing out so rapidly, because it's like you said, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen a phenomenon like this, like all throughout the history of money. And it kind of ties into a tweet that you tweeted just the other day, where you said that. Uh, you know, a lot of gold's value is its monetary premium. And we have all these pundits, uh, economic experts, whatever they might be coming out of the woodwork, attacking Bitcoin and saying, well, it's not backed by anything. It's not really worth anything. Um, but, you know, if, if we can kind of zoom out a little bit and, and look at the co- hyper compressed version of what we're seeing in Bitcoin right now, we're just watching a new monetary uh, premium emerge on this asset that, that, didn't exist 10 years ago. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and gold has a much bigger monetary premium than Bitcoin. Gold right now, if you took all of the gold in the world and multiplied it by the current price of gold per ounce, um, gold's market capitalization is something in the order of $8 trillion, which is many, many times bigger than Bitcoin. Um, so, so Bitcoin still has a long, long way to go before it uh, achieve it achieves the same um, monetary status as gold, uh, but because it has att- monetary attributes that are superior to gold, we can expect that at the margin people are going to start preferring Bitcoin to gold because you can do things with Bitcoin you just simply can't do with gold. For instance, I I don't know where you're located. Um, you know, I can see you sitting in a room, but if you gave me a Bitcoin address, I could send you. You know, a very large amount of Bitcoin. If I had a large amount of Bitcoin, I could send send it to you. Uh, Let's almost, do it. Oh yeah, <laughs> over the air. Yeah, uh, I could do it. Do it almost instantly. How do? How would I do that with gold? It's, it's literally impossible, right? I I can't transport 
10 million dollars of gold to a bedroom whose location i don't even know this is, this is a very very powerful thing that's never been possible before the ability to transmit value from one person to some person anywhere else on earth near instantly has has without a trusted intermediary has never been possible so so bitcoin is a really important monetary and technological breakthrough um so i i expect in the next um you know 10 to 20 years the the difference between the premium between bitcoin and gold the monetary premium is going to close uh and i actually think um that there is a there is a level of risk to being a gold investor right now because yeah. uh, bitcoin could not only achieve gold's market capitalization bitcoin could start cannibalizing gold's market capitalization and and when i when i first got interested in investing in bitcoin um i sort of i i thought of bitcoin as a a hedge or an insurance policy against the gold that i owned i thought hey there's this little thing this bitcoin thing um it's small now it's tiny tiny compared to, to gold but um if it ever becomes something then I, I might become a little bit worried about my gold um now i almost think about it the other way it almost feels like there's an inevitability to bitcoin overtaking gold and i think of my gold which i i still own you know a little bit of gold i think of it as an insurance policy against something happening in bitcoin that i i haven't necessarily anticipated let's say the cryptography is broken or something like that um so yeah it, it's interesting to think that as bitcoin grows it's it's going to start competing with and um cannibalizing uh the, the value of other monetary goods yeah isn't it interesting how there's this uh strongly mistaken assumption that the value of gold is propped up by its utility um you know, but like I said, like the tweet that you put out exposed or just brought attention to is that, well, no, most of the value in gold is its monetary premium. It's got nothing to do with its industrial utility. Um, that That's a concept I think is outside of a lot of people's just layman's grasp. Uh, I, I don't think it's something that we really think through a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. I think if you ask the average person why gold is why does it have as much value as it does? They would be really perplexed. And even, even someone as um, well-regarded as Warren Buffett, I feel like didn't or doesn't understand why gold is valuable. He, he made some um, snide remark about how it made no sense for people to dig up gold from one part of the earth and go and take it to another part and bury it. Like, what's the, what's the value of that? Um, and if you ask someone like Peter Schiff, like what's so special about gold, he'll, you know, versus something like Bitcoin, he'll say, well, you can use it as a gold teeth or you can use it in dentistry or, or maybe there's some small electronic usage, but really the value of gold comes from the fact that people hold it as a store of value. And with gold, very interestingly, it's primarily held as a store of value by central banks. Um, so a very large fraction of the gold supply sits still doing absolutely nothing in the vaults uh, of central banks and in particular the Federal Reserve, um, which holds gold on behalf of other countries. And that actually, if you think about it, presents a problem for some of these other countries. Imagine you're a country like Venezuela and you have some of your reserves 
uh, in gold bricks and they're being held in um, uh, the Federal Reserve vaults or they're being held in the Bank of England. And all of a sudden you have a financial crisis and you want to uh, liquidate some of your gold and, and use, uh, use the gold or a political crisis. They're kind of having a political crisis right now. And you can't because they're in the vaults of another central bank and that central bank decides to say, nope, that's, you're not getting the gold because we disapprove of the politics in your country. It, it really shows the weakness of gold and the centralizing tendencies that come from gold uh, because it's a physical object. Uh, and, and that means it's uh, costly and, and difficult to secure the gold. And so people kind of outsource it. If you have a very large um, holding of gold, you typically don't hold it yourself because you don't want to have to deal with the security of it. Um, whereas with Bitcoin, if you're a nation state, uh, you, you can control your own, own Bitcoin very easily. And in the case that, say, you're the Venezuelan dictator, I, I, I should say I'm not trying to um, justify or um, give praise to uh, any of these dictators who might want Bitcoin, but I'm just sort of going through... The, the rationale for why they might want Bitcoin. If you're a Venezuelan dictator, you, you need funds. It's much better for you to have those funds in Bitcoin than to have them in gold that's held by someone else. Uh, and, hmm. and so I, I, I think we're eventually going, going to see nation states enter the Bitcoin market as it grows into a size that's comparable to gold. They'll start thinking of it as a reserve asset, just like gold. And they'll see the benefits of holding it because it gives them sovereignty over their reserves. They get to control them directly, fairly easily, um, and not have uh, other nations uh, meddle in their, their internal politics. It's interesting that you bring up like some of those issues with gold. Uh, I've been reading about Bretton Woods lately, and uh, you know, even in the days of uh, Bretton Woods, you know, when the whole world was on quote unquote, a gold standard, foreign currencies weren't directly reserved by gold. They were pegged to the US dollar and, and you could exchange your foreign currency for the US dollar and the US dollar was redeemable for gold. Uh, but a thought that I had there, and I don't know how much historical authenticity this thought has, but I would think nation states were probably the only ones that really ever wanted to redeem their dollars for gold because if I have a dollar and I know it's backed by gold, why would I ever want to redeem it for gold? It, that's what it is. It's a voucher for gold, and it's easier for me to carry these dollars around and spend my dollars. Um, but when Bretton Woods collapsed, you know, in, in 1973, I think it was, uh, the other countries were kind of left holding the bag. You know, it's like, well, now we have all these pieces of paper and we don't have any of the gold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You bring up some very interesting history. Um, prior uh, to World War One. Uh, the world was on a pound standard, the British pound, and then after World War II, it was the dollar standard. And and part of that uh, is that it's just sim simpler or easier to move around dollars or paper than it is to move around the physical gold. Uh, but it was based on a faith that you could uh, redeem that paper for gold. And um, in, uh, I believe it was in the 60s, Charles de Gaulle, who was the president of France, uh, said the United States was abusing the exorbitant privilege that it had in being the world's uh, 
monetary standard, it was abusing the privilege of the world using the dollar. And it was abusing it by inflating the supply of dollars so that there were more dollars than there were gold backing the dollars. And so Charles de Gaulle said, hey, I want my gold. Give me my gold. I don't, I don't believe that you have enough gold to redeem all the dollars that France has. And, and this mindset and this lack of faith from uh, nations around the world was really what led to the closing of the gold window by Nixon because the U.S. did not have enough gold to redeem uh, based on all the dollars that were out there. Um, and and uh, I think it was de Gaulle who said that we'll eventually return to a monetary standard that doesn't bear the mark of any particular nation. And my view is that standard is going to be Bitcoin. It will become the international monetary base. And it doesn't have the problems of gold where you, ha you really have to use paper versions of the gold because it's so cumbersome and difficult to deal with the physical gold. Uh, so the, the, the fundamental problem that caused the end of the gold standard is, I think, solved by Bitcoin and, and, and why I think, to borrow Safer Dean's term, uh, we'll eventually be on a, a Bitcoin standard. And, you know, the, the period of history that we're in is, is kind of an, an anomaly. We're, we're between, I think, two sound monetary periods. One was the gold standard, one will be the Bitcoin standard. And our you know, future posterity will look back on this period and say, what on earth were they thinking? That was, that was crazy. They were on this weird fiat money that governments could print infinite amounts of. Like, why did they even try that? The, the results in the 20th century were not good. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in a kind of anomalous period, I think. I have two thoughts on what you just said. Uh, first and foremost, there's sort of like this conundrum of inflation. You know, I think it's easy to place the blame on the United States um, under Bretton Woods. But then at the same time, you know, you look at the way the system was set up and it was sort of like, you know, they had it. They had the IMF who oversaw uh, the inflation rates of the various countries. I believe I think it was the IMF. Yeah. And the World Bank was established to uh, help rebuild Europe and the IMF was there to help. Uh, keep inflation rates sort of pegged to where they were supposed to be for the various nations of the world. Uh, everybody cheated, right? You can never trust anybody to act as they should, especially when the power of the printing press is so strong. So there's, there's, there's like this conundrum of inflation where the U.S. has two options. They can either inflate their currency to keep up with the pace of the fastest inflating foreign currency or allow uh, their dollar standard to be devalued relative to, to that currency does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And the, I agree. I mean, the temptation is always there, so strong. We can just increase our monetary supply. Uh, and there's this political, constant political pressure to do that because there are interest groups which really benefit from getting the newly printed money first and using it, obviously, at the expense of everyone else. Uh, and this is what creates these... Um, periodic booms and busts in the economy is that newly created money sort of floods into the banking system and they go invest in something or other and it, uh, it, it inflates and you get a bubble and you get way too many resources being allocated to that particular thing. So for instance, um, the, the housing bubble where you had tons of money flowing into the housing sector and people building granite countertops you know, all these expensive things in houses in places where really there was nothing to support the valuation. And, and, and once the um, 
uh, once the monetary spigot slows down, the bubble bursts and the whole thing comes crashing down and you find out there was a huge misallocation of resources. Like real people were doing these things when they should have been doing something more productive than, for instance, laying granite countertop in some house in Las Vegas. Right, right. And when the misallocation of resources and malinvestment becomes so big, you know, there has to be liquidation. It's kind of part of the cycle. And, I, you know, you, you almost have to wonder whether or not that emerged organically or whether it was part of the plan. You know, we, we could probably only speculate on uh, that. Um, but, you know, before that, you had mentioned uh, the idea of this Bitcoin is like this this global monetary standard. Uh, which is something that is sort of a foreign concept. And it's actually one of the things that uh, John Maynard Keynes, you could argue, was a forward thinker. And uh, because when they were trying to propose Bretton Woods, Keynes wanted a global monetary standard. He wanted a, a non-sovereign uh, global currency called the Bancor, right? And he was almost too far ahead of his time because the, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a Keynes or Keynesian by any means. I always say that, I always say his name wrong, uh, but in that sense, you know, the idea of a global currency that wasn't uh, beholden to a nation state—granted, it would probably be beholden to some central authority—but um, it maybe could be a market improvement over that old system. But now, Bitcoin sort of removes the need to even think about that idea. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of what Facebook is doing with their Libra currency. It's like this thing that's backed by multiple currencies. I think that's sort of similar to what you're talking about with Lokeens may have said, you know, a basket of goods as opposed to a basket of currencies, but it's, uh, it's kind of a similar idea that, you know, maybe you can get stability by having like multiple things in this basket. Um, but really to me, it's just, it's kind of a silly idea because there's a huge benefit to having a single mon monetary good having people save and transact in the single monetary good it, it reduces transaction fees for everyone uh and, and it makes economic calculation much better and um uh, allows for division of labor um and you know the development of civilization so i, I really think um it, it's better to have a single monetary good if you have like multiple monetary goods or uh, one thing that's backed by a bunch of things, uh, a basket of goods, then you're, you're not going to get, um, I don't think you're going to get a very uh, stable monetary base in the long term. It's interesting that you brought up Libra, because uh, actually, a lot of people don't want to touch this topic, and I, I totally get it. Uh, so if you don't want to go into it too much, that's fine. But sort of like all eyes on the world right now, at least from a regulatory perspective, they're suddenly on Libra. And there's a lot of ruffled feathers about this topic because it, this idea of taking the sovereignty of money creation away from the state and giving it to technocracy, uh, it's very offensive, particularly for nation states and maybe the people who directly benefit from their best interests. Um, but, and yet, right, the, the regulatory picture is focused on Libra and, and no one's really talking about Bitcoin. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's funny. Regulators kind of see Facebook as a bigger threat to, than Bitcoin, which is, in my view, absurd. Facebook is much easier to stop. Uh, it's completely centralized. And, you know, there, were, there was actually a, a congresswoman head of the Financial Services Committee 
who sent uh, uh, a letter to Facebook telling them that they should cease development. I mean, you can, how do you do that with Bitcoin? You just simply mm. can't do that. Um, it, it, I, I think it's because of the power Facebook wields in terms of its mind share. And Facebook does have a lot of power. It, it has the power to deplatform people and, and to strip them of their ability to communicate with each other. And, and Twitter has this to some extent as well. And it, 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 is, um, it is concerning and, and I kind of like the way you described it as a technocracy. Um, the, these large uh, technology companies in Silicon Valley uh, have a lot of power to impose the values that they have in Silicon Valley on the rest of the world because you know, almost everyone on earth is using these platforms um, and the uh, political uh, decisions of a few people in Silicon Valley are being applied to you know, people in Bangladesh and Germany and, and, and Korea, should that really be the case? Like, should someone be deplatformed and their ability to express their point of view in Germany be decided by someone in Silicon Valley? That seems kind of crazy to me. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down there in regards to like private space and uh, internet as a utility and freedom of expression and uh, there's probably a lot of places we could go with that, but I, I think people drastically underestimate the amount of power wielded by uh, those in Silicon Valley. I think I think it's wholly misunderstood the amount of data and information, and not just that, but access, the control of access to said information, uh, it is is held in the hands of those companies, those very few small companies. Yeah, absolutely. And as I'm a libertarian, uh, full disclosure, uh, and typically libertarians worry about the state. It's the primary concern is the state. But I think we need to have an eye on the power of corporations as well and whether those corporations are, uh, are freedom-supporting or whether they're freedom-destroying corporations. And I, I think there's definitely reason to be concerned about companies like uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and the influence they have on, on shaping political discourse. They, it's a really bad thing if they're the ones who get to decide um, which political ideologies are allowed to have a platform on the internet and which ones are not. Most certainly that's an interesting shift we need to be aware of. The, um, it's not, nation states aren't the only players on the global chessboard anymore, you know? Yep. Um, all right. So we can, we can shift gears a little bit. Uh, I wanted you, you tweeted something that I really, really liked, uh, just the other day. And it was about how sort of like a, a no nonsense look at what does an altcoin speculator have to do? Uh, what are their targets, right? In order to compensate for the risk of altcoins versus just investing in Bitcoin. Now, I think this is a really interesting topic because, I spend a lot of time talking about Bitcoin and I have people coming to me all the time saying, well, what do you think about this altcoin? Well, what do you think about that altcoin? And I tell them, I don't have any interest in any altcoins. All I do is focus on Bitcoin. And they say, well, oh yeah, yeah, me too. I'm all about that Bitcoin, but I shitcoin to get more Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> and, and I kind of just, I always look at it, I'm always like, what? Can you tell us, tell us about uh, the, this tweet, tweet storm that you had about this? Yeah, so... 
I think the point you make is a really good one. I think a lot of people just trade altcoins because they're more volatile than Bitcoin uh, and they seem like good trading opportunities for them to accumulate more Bitcoin because they think of it, it's hard to get a lot of Bitcoin because the price is so high. So why don't I trade these altcoins and that'll allow me to get more Bitcoins more quickly. I don't think there are many people who buy altcoins because there's some underlying utility. I think most of them, in fact, I would say all of them have no underlying utility. They have these narratives that they're useful for this or that purpose. But I think if you actually look at whether they're being used for those purposes, it's it's complete nonsense. Um, but if you do view them as a trading opportunity to get more Bitcoin, then you have to believe that they're going to significantly outperform Bitcoin for that to be a good strategy, um, especially because you have to take into account the friction of taxation. If um, if Ethereum does 50% better than Bitcoin, say, let's imagine um, they both, you have $1 of Bitcoin and $1 of Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, your Bitcoin investment gets to $10, but your Ethereum investment gets to $15, so it's done 50% better than your Bitcoin investment. If you ultimately want to accumulate Bitcoin, you sell that Ethereum to Bitcoin, that's a taxable event and you owe taxes on that. And so you owe taxes on that $15, uh, which will take away about 25%. And, and that'll get you to having about $10 of Bitcoin. So you, you haven't gotten more Bitcoin. Uh, and, and so if you... If you want to do this kind of trading, the, the altcoins you're trading have to massively outperform Bitcoin to take into account the extra risk. They're much riskier. They're much less liquid, which means that if you have a sizable position, say you have a few hundred thousand dollars of some small altcoin, it's really hard to exit that position without cratering the price of the altcoin. Um, so so to, to compensate for all those things, uh, the altcoin has to really outperform. And if you actually look in this bull market, most of these altcoins are not even keeping pace with Bitcoin. They're dropping in Bitcoin terms, which makes them a horrendous investment. Like they're riskier, they're less liquid. Um, there's taxation on any gains. So you could have Ethereum, for instance, underperforming Bitcoin fairly significantly. Let's say it underperforms Bitcoin by 20%, but it goes up in dollar terms. So you sell your Ethereum to Bitcoin, so you have to pay taxes on that as well, and it's underperformed Bitcoin. So right now, I think it's looking really, really bad for altcoins. This is they're not providing any utility, and and they're not even providing a good trading opportunity to accumulate more Bitcoins. And I, my personal view is that some lessons have been learned learned from the previous bull market, and and people have seen that. Um, a lot of these altcoins are scams or they're hollow. They don't have any value proposition. Uh, and I think the smart money is really focusing on Bitcoin in this bull market. Uh, the last bull market, if Bitcoin went up, say, 5%, Ethereum would have gone up 10% and some really crappy altcoin would have gone up 50%. This bull market, Bitcoin goes up 5% and Ethereum only goes up 2%. And so it's dropping in Bitcoin terms. Um, and I honestly view this as a very healthy development. The smart money is coming in and is realizing that the, the real value proposition is on Bitcoin as a monetary good, uh, becoming a, a reserve asset for the world and, and hopefully eventually taking over gold status for that role. Um, 
So I, I think there are a lot of traders out there who just assumed that alt season, as they call it, was going to come back. They'd seen it happen a few times in the past where Bitcoin would rally and then there'd be an alt season. And there's this really strong assumption it's just going to happen again. I think it's a very, very dangerous assumption to make to trade altcoins in the hope of getting more Bitcoin. You could get completely stuck with something that you can't liquidate because it's too illiquid. Um, you're going to have to pay taxes on it and it may not even keep up with Bitcoin as Ethereum is not right now in this, this bull market. So if you want more Bitcoin, I, I suggest just stack sats, buy a little bit as much as you can afford and are comfortable losing um, and, and won't stress you out and just buy it directly. Yeah, you made some really good points there. Um, I, I think there's a really dangerous cognitive bias in if you don't understand Bitcoin, because right, some people aren't trading Bitcoin or aren't trading altcoins to get more Bitcoin. They're doing it to get more dollars. Um, and there's a dangerous cognitive bias there because it's like, well, my dollars are going up, so therefore I'm winning. Um, but if you take into account, you know, what you just said, right, about the the taxation friction, uh, and and you're examining the the assets performance relative to Satoshi value, not in dollar value, you might see that you're actually on the losing end of a trade. Yeah, you might have made some dollars, um, but the opportunity cost there is is pretty big and it's more than that because if you're holding, you know, if you're trading in and out of altcoins and then into Bitcoin because your goal was to get more Bitcoin, you're, you're looking at three uh, opportunities for the market makers to, to charge you fees, right? Because you have to enter the altcoin, you have to exit the altcoin, and then you have to enter Bitcoin, assuming that you're exiting into like a stable coin or back into US dollars, unless you're trading directly into a Bitcoin pair, then it's only, uh, I think, two, two fee events. But uh, if you're it, it, with the liquidity problem, even if you're just buying very small amounts of altcoins and holding on to them for long periods of time, hoping you'll get lucky, again, now you're talking about the fees of the minor transactions. You're talking about uh, having to mentally calculate security models for each of these different currencies and having to sort through all of that and then getting them back on the exchanges and having to facilitate that. It's a, it's a headache. I know when I finally decided to stop paying attention to altcoins, it was a big mental relief. <laughs> yeah, I you know I agree with everything you've said, and I would just add that, in my view, on reflection of um, observing markets for the last twenty years, um, almost no one gets rich by trading, partly because there's a huge friction due to taxes, and if you look at people who are you know truly wealthy who have built wealth. Um, uh, it's a large amount of wealth over a long period of time. It's because they've held, they've had a hot concentrated position in something that became very valuable. So Jeff Bezos is the most, um, he's the wealthiest person on earth because he held a concentrated position in Amazon stock and it became incredibly wealthy. Same thing for Warren Buffett. He held large positions in these companies and held them forever. If you want to build real wealth, in my opinion, you need to have, a concentrated position in something that becomes really big and not trade it. And, and to have a concentrated position and be able to hold it over a long period of time as it appreciates, you really have to have a lot of conviction. You really have to believe it. And this, honestly, for me, is why I could never trade altcoins. I would be shaken out in every crash 
because I have no conviction, I don't have any belief in the underlying story about why they're valuable. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's been you know easy for me to stomach the bear markets and the crashes and and the the price going up because I really have strong conviction in why it's valuable. Uh, so so I I would definitely avoid trading if you if you want to make the big win. I think holding and having patience uh, is the is the way to go. Right, because I mean at the end of the day. I, I know why I'm here. It's because I think Bitcoin uh, represents a unique opportunity for this new technology to potentially become global money. And when I look at this technology, I see, you know, comparatively to everything else, uh, Bitcoin is the most likely to become global money. None of these other projects are have even a shot in hell of becoming global money. Uh, And you had mentioned, you know, again, later on down in this tweet storm that even if these altcoins are able to maintain parity with their social or with their Satoshi value, that they're still worse investments because A, they're more centralized, B, they're illiquid for now at least, and C, they don't have as strong security models, like not even close, Uh, especially when we start talking about things like hash power, right? And, and, proof of stake, which, you know, I'm not even going to get into that, but I'll say that I think it's a joke. Uh, and then you look at, at things like Ethereum and Ethereum has had, I think, Ter Demeester's, the organization he's a part of just posted research today that uh, the Ethereum node count is down 34% in the last eight months. You're looking at this project that prides itself on, uh, at one point in time, it was the world's computer, but now it's shifting its focus narrative, if you will, to decentralized finance. Um, becoming less and less decentralized by the day. Uh, that's a problem and that, that should definitely be figured into your security model when you're speculating on something you think is has the potential to become global money. Yeah, the, the narrative for Ethereum is really falling apart. And if you, I, I posted on, on Tor's tweet um, showing a graph of uh, DAP usage and it's dropped significantly since 2017 which is why the narrative has changed from, you know, dApps being the fundamental source of value for Ethereum to DeFi, uh, which I think is also another hollow narrative. But honestly, there, there is, in my opinion, no credible competitor to Bitcoin in the cryptocurrency space. Nothing even comes close. Um, so in, in my mind, Bitcoin succeeds or fails, but uh, there isn't, it succeeds or fails for reasons external to other cryptocurrencies, but there's no chance, as far as I can see, some other uh, cryptocurrency supplanting Bitcoin as the dominant dominant one. And I actually expect that in this next bull cycle, the other cryptocurrencies are going to lose a lot of their value relative to Bitcoin. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, and I hope... I hope that some of the people, you know, that I'm friends with, uh, I hope they see the writing on the walls or I hope that they're listening right now and, and uh, just maybe taking our word for it and taking a step back and taking another look. Um, because a lot of people, they're, they're, there's a lot of money tied up in these failing projects and it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. Like when it, because it's hurt in the last year and a half, but you guys haven't seen it go to zero yet. So uh, it could still get a lot worse. Um, well, you had mentioned, uh, again, in another tweet, I, I did a lot of combing of your tweets today in, c- in case you didn't notice, but you had said that there were two primary pillars of Bitcoin, 
uh, a the permissionless secure uh, permissionless ability to secure and transport it, which we had kind of touched on earlier, and then two or b the lack of an ability to debase your wealth. Um, and and you said anything besides these two pillars is noise. So can you kind of expand on that a little bit and how it fits into what we were just saying about, you know, Bitcoin superiority compared to some of these other things? Yeah, really the, the, um, what you want from a store of value is something that you can trust is going to be valuable into the future and not only valuable into the future, but allows you to use it in the future, which means that you can take it somewhere else. For instance, if you're in a failing country, you want to escape, um, like a lot of Jewish people in World War II left or managed to escape Europe and get to America, but they had nothing. Uh, the, the, the famous um, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises was penniless when he, he um, got to America and he, he lived a fairly comfortable life in Switzerland before he escaped Europe. So, so what you want is the ability to take your wealth somewhere or transport, transport it into the future. And you don't want, its value to be destroyed by someone else. And that's the problem with fiat money. You hold dollars now and you have to trust someone else uh, to, to uh, allow the dollar to keep its value. If the Federal Reserve starts printing money like crazy or lowering interest rates, um, then you really have to worry about the dollars that you have in your bank account. Bitcoin has the property that it's very easy to transport into the future. You can have your private keys in your head uh, and it's very easy to transmit to someone on the other side of the world. And if you want, you can cross a border with $5 million of Bitcoin in your head. You can't do that with anything else. Um, so it, it has a lot of um, freedom creating potential. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I've told this story once before, but I got firsthand experience of this when um, my dad, when I was a kid, um, wanted to transport our wealth to India. He, he was worried that he would have to take care of my sister and I um, because my mom had developed a brain tumor. And he was like, well, I, you know, I'm from India. I'm not sure I can raise these kids by myself in this, this foreign country. And so we sold all those houses. And, and the only way to get the money to India at the time was in the form of gold. Like there was no... There's no way to transfer money via banks uh, in, in the early 90s. Um, so he, he converted, uh, he sold his houses, converted the money to gold, and he literally carried a bag of gold to India, a bag of gold coins to, to India, uh, and, and sold them over there so that he could you know, buy some real estate in India. It was an incredibly terrifying experience to carry your wealth in a bag on an airplane. At any moment, someone could... Um, rob you and that's it all, all of the hard work that you've done for your entire life is gone and you can't get it back that's a that's a really scary thought so for me i i understood bitcoin's value proposition immediately it, it allows you to do that same thing without the risk of carrying a bag of physical gold hmm. so to me that's the, the fundamental pillar of bitcoin's valuation it, it's really good at storing and transmitting transmitting value better than anything else that's ever existed yeah you know I, I was thinking while you were just saying that i think for the non-technical user it's really easy to underestimate the importance of bitcoin security right because without 
we know that Bitcoin is is 100% secure, uh, and we know that it's built on sound cryptography, and we know that everything that Bitcoin does can be proved mathematically. Um, but it's easy to underestimate that because if we didn't have that one core tenant, then everything else falls apart. Suddenly, you can't send it to me. You know, you can't send that large amount of Bitcoin to me that we talked about earlier. Your father can't uh, put it in his head and, and use it to transfer wealth across the border. Because if it wasn't the most secure thing out there, like if security was not in the forefront of our concern, then it would be attacked. Then it would be debased, then it would be, it would come under attack from all angles constantly. And it already does. And just because it stands up to those attacks, we know that the security is, uh, it has integrity, right? Uh, but I think it's easy, like I said, for the non-technical users to vastly underestimate the importance of security. And it's one of the reasons that I've so staunchly defended Bitcoin maximalism for so long is because the security model of Bitcoin is so far superior to anything uh, that that attempts to come near it. Yeah, and the the two uh, value propositions that I gave in that tweet really uh, stem from the fact that Bitcoin is the only decentralized cryptocurrency. None of them, none of the other ones are decentralized. And it's very easy for someone who's new to this space to confuse something like Bitcoin with Facebook's. Uh, Libra and say they're both digital currencies. Why is one better than the other? You can't trust those two pillars of Bitcoin's value proposition unless it's decentralized, unless no one can control it. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. The security mo model and the decentralization are fundamental to those two value propositions. Hmm. Well, uh, I know we're running short on time here because you got to get going, but uh, I want to plug your work again one more time just for all my listeners who have not read The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. It's awesome. You definitely should read it at least once. Um, did Cryptoconomy ever do an audio version of it? I think he did, right? He, he did. And I really, that was another thing I was super humbled by that uh, he very early on did a reading of a fantastic reading. It's still my favorite one. Um, and yeah, if you don't, have the time or inclination to read an hour-long article you can sort of listen to it in podcast form uh, which a lot of people prefer to do on their drive to work or you know riding to the park or whatever it is yeah after they're uh, after they listen to the bitcoin echo chamber that's when they go and do that <laughs> exactly um, so i'm going to put down in the show notes i'm going to put a link to the medium post for the bullish case for bitcoin and uh, maybe i'll throw the crypt economy audio version in there too uh, if you guys would be interested yeah in that. so the crypt economy the podcast version and all the translations are in the article at, at the bottom of the article if anyone wants to find say the german translation or the korean translation or any of the other ones that have been done just look at the bottom of the article you'll find them there Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, everyone follow, go and follow VJ on Twitter too, because you can keep up with uh, his, his latest work uh, posts bullish case for Bitcoin and uh, anything else VJ that you want to plug or hit on or point the listeners to. Um, go out and learn more about Bitcoin. Uh, I think we're at the beginning of a new bull market and the very early stages actually. And so now is a good time to learn about Bitcoin uh, it, it always saddens me a little bit that, you know, the, the time that I get the most people coming in asking me about Bitcoin is like at the end of a bull market. 
when people are FOMOing all over each other and it's like, oh, you know, I really, I love Bitcoin. And I think it's even at the end of a huge bull market, like the last one, it's still massively undervalued, but God, it feels bad telling people to buy <laughs> at the end of a bull market. Now is, I think now is a good time to read about it, to learn about it, to understand why having an allocation to Bitcoin is a good idea. Um, to do it before uh, we get to the end of the bull market when people are going crazy and paying like much more than you'd have to pay today <laughs> to get some Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Invest in education. Yep. Definitely. All right. Uh, and where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow you? Uh, my handle is real underscore VJ. Real underscore VJ. All right, guys. And I'll put a link to that down in the show notes too. Um, VJ, anything, any last words before we say goodbye? It was great being on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I enjoyed it. We'll have to have you back sometime. All right, guys. Welcome back. I sure hope that you enjoyed that talk. I really had a fun time talking with VJ. He's a really sharp guy. Don't forget that you can find all the episodes on the Bitcoin Echo Chamber at our website, bitcoinechochamber.com, or you can find us listed on pretty much any of your favorite podcast services like Spotify and iTunes. If you just search for Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you'll find us. And if you're listening, I highly appreciate anytime you guys give me the stars, the thumbs up, the reviews on iTunes, all that stuff means so much to me. It goes a long way on helping me grow the audience of the show and get the message out to more people. If you guys want to reach out to me, you can contact me at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C. Feel free to reach out to me with any comments or questions you might have about the show. My DMs are always open on Twitter, and I'm always looking for new interesting guests that might have unique perspectives on Bitcoin or just want to talk about this new technology with me. Don't be shy. If you think you're a nobody, some of my best guests have been people that have never done podcast interviews before, and they come on the show and they're surprised to find that people actually loved hearing what they have to say. So if you think that you'd like to be a guest on the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, reach out to me. No pressure. We can just chat, and if it turns out being an interesting conversation, maybe I can put it on the show. Thanks so much for your guys' continued support with the podcast, and I will see you guys next week. Actually, I might not see you guys next week, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to get an episode out, but might not happen. Maybe wait two weeks.